Okay, Exodus chapter 4. Um, one last reminder as we start, next week is our annual members meeting. If you're a member, stick around. Be here. We need you. Uh, we are uh, proposing the uh, annual budget and uh, affirm, reaffirming Aaron Savage as an elder, so I would encourage you to be here for that. Oftentimes when we open the Bible, we come across a text that reminds us that God is a good father. And when we do this, for me, every time I do this, it's impossible for not, me not to think of my own father. Next month, uh, it will be, it'll been five years since my dad passed away. And, and it occurred to me as I looked around that uh, our church has grown and changed so much that some of you never knew my dad. Uh, and, and, I, and I dearly love my dad. As I reflect on his life and his love for me, it's increasingly fun. <laughs> With all my dad's faults, I always knew that my dad loved me and was proud of me. In fact, uh, I remember when I, I graduated from seminary many moons ago. And uh, I'll just never forget my dad. I was the first one in our family to have a, a master's degree. My dad was very proud of that. He would tell people regularly, this is my son. He just graduated with a master's degree from seminary. He would introduce me to that. When I got my first uh, uh, position as a, as a pastor, he would introduce me as his son who is a pastor. He's very, very proud of it. And, uh, and it still brings great joy to know that he thought that way about me. It was fun to have my dad and just to see him have so much pride and, and just to know that he loved me. You know, the truth is God is a father to us like that. I mean, we are his children and he is a good father to us. We've been in this uh, series in Exodus for a month now, and, and it's a series really about getting to know God. The first half of the book of Exodus, God is introducing himself to his people, and they're getting to know him. The first chapter, we see God's people were oppressed. In the second chapter of Exodus, we get Moses' origin story. And in chapters three and four, Moses meets God at the burning bush, and God gives Moses his name, Yahweh, his personal name. Today, um, after God gives Moses this job, this mission to go deliver a message to Pharaoh, today what we're going to see that the importance, there's an importance to knowing God. And one of the ways God wants us to know him is that we are his children. He is our father. And he wants to, uh, us to understand our position as his children. And so because of the nature of today's text, I want to read the whole thing together today, these 13 verses or so, uh, and then we'll dive into it. And so Exodus chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 18 and work our way through the end of the chapter. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, which is, by the way, the best name for a father-in-law ever. I love that. Jethro, because we think of the Beverly Hillbillies. Anyway, uh, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, hey, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro says, go, and I wish you well. Now, the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. And Moses took his wife and sons and he put them on a donkey and he started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Now we're going to run into some verses that are really interesting and perplexing. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh's all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. All right, the language of that is unmistakable. God is not predicting that Pharaoh will harden his own heart towards God. God is predicting that he will cause and be the initiator of Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. Whoa. Some of you might say, that's not fair. Well, hold on. Verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused and let you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses. And he was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are bridegroom of blood to me, she said, so the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Wait, What? Did, whoa, whoa. Yeah, right, right. What is going on? I, okay, that should confuse you because it confuses every scholar that ever opened the book of Exodus. Uh, it is the most controversial and difficult passage in the entire book of Exodus to deal with. We're going to try to figure out what on earth is going on there today. Then the Lord said to Aaron, Moses' brothers, uh, go into the desert to meet Moses so he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. So overall, <laughs> as we look at this kind of difficult passage today, what I want you to know is simply this, that God is a good father of his children, Israel, and specifically of Moses. And because of Jesus, God is our good father too. And the reason this that I say that is because I really believe this passage is about sonship. It's not exclusive to males. That's not what the word son means. It means heir or children. And so it's about being an heir to a father. And in the Old Testament, an heir was, all, was a son in the Old Testament. But what we can implicate, by implication understand is that certainly God means that we are his children. We are his heirs in Christ. Now, I say that this passage is about sonship because... Think, look about all the references to son in the text. First of all, uh, Moses is a son-in-law to Jethro. The very first thing we see is, as a son-in-law, he's going to his father-in-law to get his blessing on the journey. The next thing we see is Moses had sons, and, and he's caring for them. God refers to his people then as, as a firstborn son, a, a reference to their status as children or heirs. And then, of course, he says, Pharaoh, your firstborn son is going to pay the price because of what you do to my firstborn son. And then lastly, we see Moses' son is circumcised. And there's sonship just woven throughout all these ideas. 
And, and as a good father, there are some things you should know about who God is as our father today from this text. There are some things you should know about who he is and how he relates to you. We are, after all, getting to know God. And so there, there's a few things today. Four, in fact. My four-point sermon might be a little longer than Susan's. But as, as, as our father, God is, first of all, our constant companion. As our father, God is, first of all, our constant companion. God has given Moses a mission, and Moses, though reluctant, is willing to go back to Egypt. Uh, the first thing he does is go to Jethro, and, and as a good son-in-law, he owes his father an explanation. <laughs> By the way, I showed up 40 years ago. I married your daughter. I had kids. I, I'm peeling out. Peace out. He doesn't just disappear without an explanation. He, he's a good son-in-law, and he receives Jethro's blessing in this. Now look at verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses, go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. It's important to note here what God is not saying. God is not saying to Moses, it's safe to go back now because anyone who wanted to kill you is dead. He's not saying it's safe because it's not safe. There's a great danger that lies ahead for Moses. Rather, what, what God is saying to Moses is rather he's saying, listen, the, the past is behind you. All the baggage, all the fear, all the reasons that you left Egypt, all the stuff you've been running from it, it is behind you. What's ahead of you now is my mission for you. And so it's time. I mean, this is exciting. Moses is getting ready to go off on a great journey like his forefather Abraham did 600 years previous when, when he left the land and went to the land that God promised. He's off on a journey. I, I love to travel. Traveling's exciting. Uh, we, for years, have uh, always typically travel in a car, and we put all the kids in the car, and we drive someplace a long ways away that's usually in the winter warmer than it is here. Uh, and uh, I love, it's exciting getting ready to travel and go on a trip with our family's exciting. And I love that, getting up at four in the morning and piling all the kids in the van and heading off and they all fall back to sleep. And then for like three hours, there's just peace and quiet. It's great, you know, just driving with the peace and quiet. And then the sun comes up and the first one wakes up and then it's all chaos after that, right? But there's an excitement and anticipation about going. And Moses is ready. Verse 20, Moses gets up, he gets his family ready to go. He's headed out. Look at what Moses grabs. Look what he grabs. This is so important. In, in verse 20, he says, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Why is that important? Well, because in verse 17, just three verses earlier, God said, take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. The staff symbolizes God's presence and his power. Moses is not heading out on his own. He's not alone. God is his constant companion on this adventure. All the promises, all of them that God has made, all of them in the previous section are symbolized in this staff. Grab a staff. And this staff is a reminder that God is his constant companion. He's not on his own. He's not alone. As a father... God is not absent. It may have seemed that way in the past when the Israelites were in slavery, but he has always been there, and he promises to continue to be a constant companion to you. 
Uh, perhaps you've had an experience like this, where you've had an earthly father that was absent. And you know the pain and the hardship that that has caused. It's painful. Perhaps you've thought God was an absent father. He's not. He's a constant companion. Just as Moses had the staff symbolizing God's presence, so we, as the children of God, have God's Spirit with us through the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because Jesus died and He rose and He sent us His Spirit. God is a constant companion with us. When I was a little kid, one of the things my dad did for me was he reminded me of this truth that God is a constant companion. Uh, when, when I was probably six, seven, eight years old, I had a period of time where I was regularly waking up in the night terrified. Terrified that God had abandoned me. Terrified that I was going go to go to hell someday. I was just terrified of this. Um, and I remember one night my dad came into my lower bunk bed when my brother had the upper one, I had the lower one, and, and he came in and he sat down on the side of my bed and he said, David, I, I have a present for you. And it was a shiny new quarter. And he handed me the quarter and he just said, uh, I want to remind you that when God makes a promise to you, he gives you a gift. Jesus is a gift for you. And he never takes it back. My, he never takes it back. He'll never leave you. He said, I'm going to leave you this quarter. It's my gift to you. I'm never going to take this quarter back. In fact, we're going to tape this to the side of your dresser. So anytime you think that maybe God isn't with you, maybe God took his promise back, you could just look at that quarter and be reminded that just as I'm not taking back the quarter, so God won't take back his gift of salvation to you. God is always for you. And that's like God's love for us. Moses' staff is a reminder. I had a quarter. I wish I kept that quarter somewhere in high school. I threw it away probably or spent it more likely, right? But uh, uh, it was just a symbol. Moses has a staff. I had a quarter. As you set out to accomplish whatever mission that God has put in front of you, just remember, God is a constant companion for you. There's a second truth then about God as our good father. As our father, not only is he a constant companion, but he's our tenacious defender. At first glance, these next three verses have one phrase that just jumps out at us. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is complex. Because our our first question is we see God doing the one hardening. How is this fair? And we have to balance this, of course, with the other sections. We're really going to dig into this in in the future when... uh, Every plague that God gives on the Israelites, everyone but one says either Moses, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, his heart was hardened, or God hardened his heart. And there's these three concepts together. And uh, some people say, you know, Pharaoh, he did the hardening first, so God's hardening is just in response to that. And some people say, well, God did the hardening first, and Pharaoh's just in response to that. But even the Apostle Paul struggled understanding this concept. In Romans chapter 9, when Paul is talking about this very passage, he says, some of you will say, how is this fair, essentially? And Paul's response is, who are you to talk back to God? In other words, remember your place. He, He doesn't have an answer to put it all together. As Moses writes the Exodus, 
it, it really doesn't seem to bother Moses at all because God is sovereign and can, God can do what he likes. The big question for the audience, the original audience, the Israelites, as they're going up to the promised land and Moses is writing this down, the big question is why? Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, this is because God is tenaciously defending his people. The question that Moses is asking is not as it's fair. The question the Israelites are answering or asking, because to them, it's, it's very fair to them. The question that they're asking is, why does God do this? And it's because he's tenaciously defending his people. Listen, it's as if God is saying, listen, Pharaoh, you've been oppressing. <laughs> you've been an oppression against my children. It's a great injustice. And I don't care if I have to harden your heart to make this just for my people. I'm going to do it. And God is tenaciously defending his children. When I think of uh, a good father like that, I, th I think of my dad again. Well, one of the interesting stories that I remember very vividly when I was probably in maybe a junior, junior high, maybe seventh, eighth grade, my brother was older than me. He worked at a, a local grocery store. And, uh, and when my brother was about 17 years old, he made a small mistake while he was working, and it happened to be in the middle of a police sting operation against the store, and uh, he did something he shouldn't have done, just as a pure accident, and he found himself at 17 years old in the back of a squad car. And uh, it was complete, he got completely set up, and it was completely unfair, uh, and my dad got a call from, from, from the grocery store that he needed to come and help my brother. And I remember my dad about came unglued. This reserved man, stoic, uh, not, not emotional. This man came unglued at those police officers because what they were doing that he thought was unjust to his son. And he was going to tenaciously defend his son. God is a tenacious defender of you and me. Remember, Pharaoh, for whatever it is, is the deliverer of massive injustice. He has enslaved God's kids. And God is a tenacious defender. You should not say, wow, poor Pharaoh. I'm so sad for him because this isn't fair. No Israelite ever reading this text would have thought that. You should be saying rather, wow, poor Israelites, they are slaves. What an injustice. God is tenaciously defending his children. He'll do whatever it takes to defend them. The cost to Pharaoh is high. It's his firstborn son. And even as we look here, even as we see right now, we're looking forward to chapter 12. I mean, it just screams, hey, the Passover is coming when the firstborn of Israel are saved through God's power. And this also makes us look forward to Jesus. Because as God spared his own firstborn children, he would not spare his firstborn son, Jesus. Matthew 2, chapter 15, relates Jesus to this very moment in Egypt. God would liberate his children from the bondage of sin through Jesus and all the injustice would be placed upon his son. All that for you and for me. 
Every reference to son in this passage screams of Jesus. It looks forward to the moment where God would tenaciously defend us at the cost of his firstborn, his, his only begotten, his privileged heir, the eternal God, second person, Jesus. God is a constant companion and tenacious defender. The third thing you need to know from this passage, as our Father, God is a good Father. He is our gracious corrector. Constant companion, tenacious defender, and gracious corrector. Here's where we get into this section of the text, what just makes us sort of scratch our heads a little bit. And before I try to explain this, please just know, again, hands down, this is the most difficult three verses in the entire book of Exodus to know what's going on. It's difficult to translate, it's difficult to explain, it's difficult to interpret. There's a lot of pronouns in this passage without a lot of antecedents. There's just not a lot of proper nouns, so sometimes it says, the word says, he did this, and, and our text tries to explain it, but we're scratching our heads. Remember, now, the Israelites did, when they read this, they understood this. They had the cultural background to fill in the holes. It made sense to them. But to you and I, at the surface, it just seems that God is impetuous. One minute he's like, hey, Moses, I got a mission for you. Go. Moses goes, all right, I'm going to reward you by seeking to kill you. Like, it just seems that God is all over the place. What is going on? Part of it, it's not helped by the uh, NIV translation of this where it says God was about to kill him as if God is just like, yeah, maybe I can't control myself. I'm just going to kill him right now. Literally, it's more intentional than that. Literally, the translation would be God sought to kill him. While not any easier, it certainly helps us to see it's more, more calculated, less immediate. Less impulsive. There's a corrective, punitive nature to this act. So clearly Moses has done something disobedient here. And God is saying, listen, I can't rain down justice on Pharaoh through you until we get some of this issue worked out, Moses. I can't do this while my servant is living in disobedience. So this has something to do with circumcision. Um, disobedience has something to do with circumcision here. Clearly, that, that's very clear in the text. If there's something clear, it's that. And so Moses' wife, understanding this issue, takes her son. We don't know what age this son was at this time, but she takes a knife and she, she circumcises him right there on the spot. Ouch, horrible. You're supposed to just make you uncomfortable because it makes me uncomfortable, all right? And then he says something about this bridegroom of blood, and the author clarifies that what she means by this is circumcision. Okay, we have to stop and go, what is circumcision so important to God? Why does he care so much about this in the Old Testament? Well, for the Israelites, it was a symbol. It marked, it had a spiritual mark to it. That these, this was the symbol that these were God's set-apart special people. And it's so important that it's included as part of the instructions for the Passover. When, when one, for, the, for, for Jews, one of the most holy times of the year, this Passover time, this holy time of year for them, that there are instructions that you have to be circumcised, males have to be circumcised to even take part. 
And so we have to see this is really important. If you're not circumcised, you might die. So as I've looked into this and read all different kinds of thoughts, here's my best guess as to what's going on in this passage, because much ink has been spilled. And, and, you know, part of the reason that we have passages like this is to remind us that the Bible isn't simple. It could be grasped by anyone, but it's not easy. The Bible makes us engage our brains. God doesn't just, if we just did that, he'd just give us a list of like three sheets of rules. Follow these rules, do that. He doesn't. He gives us a story. We have to engage our minds in this. So as we ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand what's going on here, here's my best guess as to what's going on. Moses was, it seems that Moses was probably hidden as a baby. Pharaoh was out to kill all the males in, in, in Egypt at the time. And so his mother would not have wanted to risk circumcising a child and having that child scream. And so it seems likely that Moses was not circumcised. God needs to correct this before Moses can move on with the mission. But I think what's happening is, is Moses is unwilling what adult would want to go through that? And he's been unwilling. Plus, he's been a Midianite for 40 years. He was an Egyptian for the first 40. He's a Midianite for the next 40. He has never fully identified as the people of God. And God says, you need to embrace this, Moses, before we can go on. Moses' wife, wife she recognizes what's going on. And so she thinks, well, I can't like sneak over and circumcise Moses, right? I'm not going to work. And plus, Moses got an important mission. If I circumcise him now, he's going to be laid up for a little bit. And so she says, I'm going to do, I'm going to take my son who Moses has been unwilling to circumcise, and I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to take the the leftovers and touch them to Moses' feet, which is a symbol of, of something going on by proxy. So somehow, Zipporah is saying, I'll circumcise my son, touch this to Moses' feet, and by proxy, Moses, it'll be as if he was circumcised. Now you're going, wait, what? You can do that? Like, when is that? I'd like to do some things by proxy. I would like to run a marathon by proxy, right? So I can put the 26.2 sticker on the back of my car. As it is, I got the .262 sticker. That's something different. Uh, you know, like, I want to do stuff by proxy. How does this work? I don't know. <laughs> Normally, this is not how things work. But there's something spiritual going on here. And something happens in this act by where Moses' heart is circumcised, where Moses' heart is changed. If God was impetuous about this, if he was just impulsive and like, ha ha, I'm going to kill you now, he could have killed Moses long ago. Or he wouldn't even have to pause. He could have just gone, you're done. God is not impetuous about this. God is wanting to graciously correct Moses because that's what God does. He's a good father and he graciously corrects his children. There's grace in what God is doing here. 
As a father of six children, I've had a lot of opportunity to graciously correct my children. I wish to say, I wish I could say I got it all right all the time, but I, I do know I feel like I'm somewhat of an expert on discipline because I've had to do it so much. I know how not to do it. I know how to do it. But one thing I've said when I've disciplined my children is I never say the phrase, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You've heard that phrase uttered because that is not true. (laughs) This is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me when I'm graciously trying to correct or discipline my children. I'm not going to say that I enjoy it, (laughs) but I do like disciplining my children because I know it's good for them. I know at the end of this time, the discipline is right and good for them. I don't like to see them suffer, but I do love that it's good for them. At the time, they don't know it, but they eventually will. You know, this is a reminder for us that God in the gospel disciplines us. But even as Zipporah, by proxy, circumcised Moses' heart, There is a place where by proxy this works. Because this works in the gospel. Because you and I should have to pay for our sin. We are the ones, for all of our wrongdoing, that have to answer to God. But in something that theologians call the vicarious penal atonement, substitutionary death of Christ, by proxy Jesus did for us what we couldn't possibly do. Uh, the, the Passover, looking forward to this, it screams of this. In the events leading up to the Passover, God is already paving the way for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because God is a gracious corrector. I don't know, do you want to be corrected? I mean, who wants to be corrected? Who wants to be disciplined? But one thing you and I should know is that when God graciously disciplines us, it's because he loves us and we are his children. He is a good father. Not all hardship is correction, but some is. And we should be willing to ask that question, God, how are you lovingly correcting me? Do you want to be corrected? Nope. But God loves us. And then we know that we can accept his correction. I think that's what's going on here. Is before the journey, God has some things to correct in Moses. So God is our constant companion, companion, our tenacious defender, our gracious corrector. And lastly, he's our caring provider. He's our caring provider. So God provides Moses' brother Aaron who had previously been called onto this journey, and they meet up, and and they go to the elders of Israel together. And God provides graciously a warm reception for them. Moses does the miracles. The elders believe him. Uh, He didn't have to worry about all that, all that misery that he had, worrying about would they accept me or not. God graciously provides and caringly provides for them. And then look in verse 31. This is the greatest part. Look how the text ends. Well, start in 30. And Moses and Aaron told them, the elders, everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He performed the signs before the people, and they believed. Uh, this 
little phrase screams of, uh, of the gospel and, and that the way we apply the death of Jesus to our lives is through faith. God is always working through faith. It's a powerful thing. They believed what Moses said about God. And then listen, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Uh, the, the, the phrase he was concerned literally is the, the, the phrase he visited them. When they heard that the Lord visited them. Have you ever had a friend visit you after not having seen them for a long time? Clarissa and I had an opportunity a, a summer ago to see some friends we hadn't seen for 20 years. And we went and stayed with them for about five days. Uh, and we visited them. And it was like, it just renewed their knowledge that we cared still after 20 years. Uh, it was like we picked up where we left off and no time had passed at all. And it was beautiful. There, there's a, a beautiful message conveyed in the simple act of visiting someone. What a blessing. You see, God cares. He visited his Israelites. And for Moses, he provided two things. He provided one, a brother, Aaron, to speak for him. And two, a favorable reception with the elders. God cares enough to visit us. He cares enough to provide. God has not abandoned us. He cares deeply. And if you've ever wondered if God cares, again, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Because God visited us. He became a human being. He transcended the gulf between us and him. He came to us. He visited God wasn't done visiting in Exodus chapter 4. He continues to visit, and he visits us in Jesus. Whatever your plight, God cares about you today. Whatever crappy thing you're going through right now, he cares. He cares enough to discipline, and he cares enough to provide. We are God's children. He loves us. So let's put all these things together. God's our constant companion and our tenacious defender and our gracious corrector and our caring provider. I, I would offer with you just a few thoughts as we wrap up. As we put all this together and you engage this simple concept that God is your good father, first of all, we remember that we are his children. We are his children. And for us, this does not happen through circumcision, but just like Moses' heart was circumcised, so ours are in Jesus Christ, through faith. We are his kids. Paul says you're grafted into the family. You're, you are loved. You are an heir. You are a child of God. I don't know what your background is, whether you grew up in a family where you knew you felt loved, you knew you felt part of it, or whether you grew up in a situation where you're like, ah, it was always dysfunctional. You are in Jesus Christ, undoubtedly a child of God. And he loves you deeply because he's your father. He's your companion, defender, corrector, and provider. I mean, have you thought about this? Do you, you get to call God Father. The almighty God of the universe. The God that holds all the stars and all the galaxies the entire universe in his hand. You get to call him Father. And that means you belong. 
You're his child, he's your father, and you belong. In a world of increasing disconnectedness, you have a father who cares, and you have a family. You believe in Jesus, and you belong here. Through faith, we are a family. It's a place to belong. And in Jesus, we have a father who's a, 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 excuse me, through Jesus, we have God the Father who is our companion, our defender, our corrector, and our provider. He's a good father. One of the blessings that I had growing up was family mealtime. I wish that uh, we could, my family now could have family dinner time as often as we did. I felt like we did when I was a kid because uh, we had family dinner time. The four of us gathered around. My mom would always make some dish for us and we, dad would come home from work and as kids we would say, come on, come on, sit down, sit down, sit down. Don't change clothes first. We're hungry. Come eat with us. Sometimes he'd go change clothes. He'd take forever. And then we'd come. Finally, we'd all sit down at the table. Mom would put some great dish on the table and we would eat. And I was reminded in that moment that, like, that was something my dad wanted to do. He was present. He didn't just grab his dinner and go sit in front of the TV. That was later on. But that moment, he was present. I wouldn't say my dad was the greatest conversationalist. He didn't always know how, what, what questions to ask or didn't know that, but he was present. And I knew he cared. We spent t- together. But the biggest piece that I, as I reflect on my time as a child sitting around a table with my dad, was that was a place where I belonged. It was a place where I could say to my mom, Mom, I don't like chili. Can you please make me a hot dog instead? It's a place where I could be me and I belonged and I knew that no matter what happened, wherever happened in this world, that was where I belonged. With my dad, with my family at the table. I grew up with the blessing of this. Uh, Some of you didn't grow up with that. Some of you don't have that. That's okay because you do have that in your God. Because he's a God who's your companion, your defender, your corrector, and your provider. This is the kind of God we have. And the biggest application I have for you today as we close is this. Dwell in worship on this fact. Did you notice the last verse, the last words of the text? What, when, when they realized who God was and, and what, what he was doing and, and that he had visited them and concerned, what was their response? They worshiped. And so that is how we will end today. Worshiping our good Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father to us. Thank you that you're with us. You defend us. You correct us and you provide for us. And we worship you today. Thank you that we belong, that we're part of a family. As we sing this next song and close together, let our hearts lift you fully. And just like the Israelites realized you had visited them, And they worshiped, so we worship you together now. In Jesus' name, amen.